guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quarkast Nation, welcome back. We have a special episode for you. We brought back Jason Fung. We brought back Stephen Tucker to talk about what we could do through lifestyle modifications, what we eat, how we sleep, exercise, resistance training, all these things, how they can impact cancer outcomes. And it, what I love about it, it's, it's all about taking the power back, what you could do yourselves to improve your outcomes. And this was a great live cast we did with a great question and answer period. This is part of the episode that we, we did. So if you want to see the full video, you could sign up at solvinghealthcare.ca backslash cancer. There'll be links to the show in the show notes and you could sign up there and you'll get video sent to you. But without further ado, these are gentlemen that don't need any introduction. I'm talking Dr. Stephen Tucker, oncologist, innovator, as well as Dr. Jason Fung, nephrologist, author. Latest book is a Cancer Code, amazing body of work. So yes, without further ado, guys, let's jump on it. Dr. Stephen Tucker and Dr. Jason Fung. Oh man, I uh, I'm ultra excited. So just to uh, give uh, some of the, we'll give it another minute or so for some of the the people to join in. But uh, this is gonna be fun, man. Like I'm just, we got like the greatest minds when it comes to you know outside the box thinking. You know what I mean? Like instead of mainstream going with the flow, um, it's it's all about, you know, thinking outside the box and what's best for patients. So this is what, what I think is gets me so excited about having you guys on the show. Um, so just to, just so everyone gets a sense of what the plan is. So um, welcome, everybody, as they're coming in here. Um, this is um, the webinar we're putting up for talking about how lifestyle modifications can alter your course or your experience with, with cancer. And um, this will be, uh, obviously, you'll have a chance to write in your questions. So there's a ch- chat box or there's also a question um, Q&A section. Either will work. The lovely Julia, who's uh, a key um team member on the Sullivan Healthcare crew, wouldn't be here without her for sure, uh, is, uh, uh, agreed to kind of curate the questions and, and allow us to kind of, um, you know, answer, uh, go through the questions in a logical way. So the, the plan will be 45 minutes of, of discussion here and, and then ample time for questions. I, I figure, you know, anywhere from 30 minutes to 45, and we should be done by 830. Um, this will be available um, parts of this will be a podcast later, but I think, um, uh, you know, the fact that you guys have joined in and had, had a chance to get involved and, oh man, I forgot to bring the book. It's, uh, oh, I'll get my wife to bring it while you guys chat at some point. Cancer code. So, someone in here is going to get a chance to win that bad boy. I am about halfway through that, Jason. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right at about uh, hyperinsulinemia. So we'll, we'll talk about, uh, We'll talk about that specifically. So let me just introduce our guests. Okay, we got Dr. Stephen Tucker, and both these lovely gentlemen have been on the show. Um, Dr. Stephen Tucker, oncologist. Where are you at right now, Dr. Stephen Tucker? I'm in Singapore. Yeah, Singapore. I'm here in my office at 8 a.m. Friday morning, Singapore. 
Yeah. And uh, innovative oncologists. We did an episode talking about fasting, um, low carb keto and, and how it gets what its place is within uh, cancer treatment. And Dr. Jason Fung, he was on episode around 30-ish talking about intermittent fasting and and approach to diabetes and uh, um, obesity, one of our more popular episodes. So it's a pleasure to have him back. Both of these guys, you know, need no introduction, but uh, I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't doing that. The other thing, guys, those that are, as you're logging in here, um, you know, Solvent Healthcare, uh, we're about a year deep and we've been, we've been growing and influencing and making good things happen. So I just want to thank you guys for supporting the show and, um, if five-star ratings, comments, all that business helps with the visibility and it's, and it, and it means the world to us. So thank you so much. All right. I just want to jump into it and we're going to start off with Jason because I was actually quite surprised to see your book, The Cancer Code, like this wasn't on my radar. I didn't know this was on your radar. So maybe at, just at a basic level, what inspired you to write The Cancer Code? It's, I actually got into it thinking it'd be a much different book than what it turned out to be. So I kind of came at it from a obesity type 2 diabetes sort of uh, mindset. And um, so when I started reading about it, so there is clearly obesity related cancers. And the funny part to me is that I went to school in the 90s. We didn't talk about obesity and cancer at all, like zero. There was no thought that it made any difference. And it wasn't until 2003 when it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, this big cancer prevention study, that it really got sort of like, whoa, this is actually huge because there's, of course, one, more obesity, and two, it was actually proven to be a fairly strong risk factor for uh, cancer. Uh, And that was sort of just led to this sort of explosion of research into both uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes and its link to cancer, which is extremely interesting to me. Um, And I thought it was going to be all about what the sort of second half of the book is, which is about insulin. Um, But it turned out, again, much more interesting than I thought it would turn out to be. Uh, I thought it was basically about going to be about insulin, hyperinsulinemia, and basically how insulin is this really big uh, growth factor. And that was sort of going to be the link uh, to it. But then as I started reading about cancer, it sort of took a bit of a different turn at the beginning because there's this whole new, these whole new developments in cancer that I didn't even know about right? This whole genetic paradigm. So I think you and, you know, we were all in this sort of um, stuck in this paradigm of cancer is this disease of genetic mutations, right? And you see that actually on the American Society for Cancer website. There's like, what is cancer? Cancer is a disease of genetic mutations. So that's what all we thought it was. So we thought it was just about how genes randomly mutate and give you cancer. Turns out that that, that whole hypothesis is like completely crap. Like it's just not useful in any way. It failed to deliver any of the useful treatments for cancer. You know, it started out with a big bang. Like we, we thought it was great with imatinib, with uh, trastazumab and stuff. It started out with a bang, but then just sort of died. Like we didn't get anything good after that. Um, and, and, and I didn't realize it, but there was a huge uh, sort of uh, change in the way people started to look at cancers from about the 2010s. So I spent a good time, uh, the, the good first half of the book, looking at sort of the history of cancer and how we think about cancer developed. So really, uh, so that was much different than I thought it would uh, be. But, you know, to me, my mind was just blown by what I was reading and finding out. And honestly, nobody was talking about this. I'm like, okay, how can all the top oncologists and stuff know that we've gone way past this story and not a single person in the general media not even talk about this? It was, it was just fascinating to me. And the, how we moved to this sort of evolutionary paradigm, which makes so much sense, explains so much about cancer. And, and what I thought was very interesting was as a, as a sort of um, 
reaction to injury and this sort of as a selective pressure for these cells to become sort of autonomous, that, that's sort of this evolutionary hypothesis. It actually took me right back to first year medical school when people were like, yeah, anything that causes chronic damage causes cancer. <laughs> and it's like, wow, this is like totally new. So that was, that was sort of how that part came about. And then I talk about diet and, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff about sort of the, the history of the, the research around nutrition and cancer, how we look at, you know, dietary fiber, dietary fat, and basically all the vitamins. Uh, that took like 50 years of research and turned up zero, you know, and there, it was just incredible to read these studies, like huge studies on like folic acid and stuff. And I thought that one was fascinating because we thought that we could give folic acid. So remember around the 2000s, there was this huge wave of enthusiasm. I was just getting into my fellowship. There was this whole thing about homocysteine. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a big, like everybody's like, oh, homocysteine's so important. It's going to, and, and you can lower it with, by giving folic acid. So there's this huge uh, study to give folic acid to prevent cardiovascular disease. Didn't work, but then it gave people a lot of cancer. And it's like, oh, well, that was bad news. So uh, then I talked about sort of uh, how we started to recognize that, well, it's, it's the hyperinsulinemia, which is really very causal, but it's actually more than that. It's actually only one of three nutrient sensors that our body uses. So there's this whole other story about mTOR, which is also a nutrient sensor, completely different and evolutionarily much more ancient than insulin. It's, you know, even insulin. So it, it was this whole hidden pathway that, that got discovered, the PI3K pathway, which linked insulin directly like as a metabolic hormone linked it directly to growth so you know huge links to cancer there and so that was sort of all that i didn't know about so it turned out to be this really fascinating journey of uh sort of seeing where the research went and and then i sort of bringing it back to how understanding these new paradigms like this evolutionary theory uh, of cancer paradigm of cancer leads to a whole new way to treat people. Like you're not simply trying to change the genes, right? So, you know, if we thought it's all about gene mutations, then you try and develop drugs for these gene mutations. And that's what we did for 30, 40 years. Let's find this gene, right? Whatever gene it is, HER2 or whatever it is, see who has a mutation, try and fix it. But if it's an evolutionary paradigm, then you say, well, let's go look at the immune system because that's our weapon against, you know, these sort of autonomous, uh, you know, cells. And that's, you know, the whole rise of immunotherapy is based on this transition to a new paradigm of cancer. And, you know, the, that, that to me was, you know, so uh, exciting. And, you know, while, while the tr studies, uh, like, like the drugs may not be there, it's exciting to sort of be on the edge of, you know, having a new paradigm to, to treat cancer. And that's sort of how this sort of whole thing came about. So it started in with the obesity, with the hyperinsulinemia, which I was very into, but turned into this whole, you know, other discussion about, um, you know, paradigms of cancer and also of uh, immunotherapy, which I thought was just fascinating. Yeah, Stephen, you look you a couple of times that you look like you want you got a couple of things to say. So um, I I I I don't know. Uh, sometimes I want to hug him, and sometimes I want to hit him. <laughs> 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 so I mean, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I do agree, and we've spoken about this, Jason. I mean, we. I, there's so many missteps and, and uh, myopic views of, of how cancer care evolved. Um, but I'm more of an optimist than I think you put out in, those, in that paragraph. Um, and, and you and I are fully on board with metabolic theory, evolutionary theory, the role of nutrition, gut bacteria, immuno-oncology. And I'm pessimistic uncharacteristically about single gene approaches and you know Gleevec was a great drug for one disease but it really threw the entire business of cancer care and drug discovery down this rabbit hole of there's one gene there's one drug and take a pill and it's, it's fine but where I have an optimism for a few of these things whether it's combinatorial chemistry and things like that is that 
um, most recent lung cancer numbers or global U.S. cancer numbers came out last week, and lung cancer survival rates continue to improve. Now, you, we all know that most lung cancer is being driven by uh, tobacco, cigarettes, and smoking, but it is pretty amazing uh, that people with established lung cancer, particularly the the non-smoking phenotype, the uh, classic Asian never smoker female, uh, the drugs that we've got, the EGFR inhibitors, uh, it's pretty amazing when you have you know 42% five-year survival rates for lung cancer. And that alone is really what's driving uh, an improvement in cancer numbers. And I think all of us can argue that cancer numbers are highly manipulated. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I see that. That said, everything that I just laid out is still misleading to the idea that cancer is highly preventable, highly associated with diet, that what you've discovered and rediscovered has been repeatedly been discovered and hidden or buried, not, not even intentionally, but just by the excitement of other new discoveries, whether you talk about banting, coming up to Atkins, coming up to keto, or you talk about infectious theory and carcinogenic theories of cancer, somatic theory of cancer, and how Warburg gets buried, you know, between basically 1950 and 1990, um, when he was really insightful on how insulin is driving cancer and how mitochondrial dysfunction plays such a major role in cancer evolution and now cancer treatment and cancer targeting. So yeah, I mean, you're, there's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story as you, you've well documented. Um, for me, I, and I think for everybody listening, I mean, your book really is contemporary and it, it brings the issues to light, all the good, the, the good issues, the positive issues and the opportunities for the patients to be empowered and have a role in their, their risk of disease, personalized risk reduction and personalized treatment plans. I would also say you can, you can bookend some of this knowledge with Sid Mukherjee's book, um, you know, which you give good reference to in the beginning. And for me, I read that, oh, I mean, right around when it came out. And then I read right after it, Eric Topol's first book. And it, it, there's a really nice evolution in there. And what's, what's interesting to me about taking the history of cancer and then the history of digital health is the word censor. Because at, you know, we've got sensors in the body. And when, you, when you're fasting, healthy cells are sensing that their metabolism should change. And cancer cells don't get that message. And they continue to run at the metabolic rate that they run at and use glucose and glutamine, et cetera. But it's the idea of sensing and, and measuring um, that's going to bring us right back to gut bacteria, what we eat whole foods, simple foods, fasting as not just cancer preventative, but health preventative. And, and that's how I got into this because I was at the oncology, at the ASCO oncology meetings, I would say exactly 10 years ago and had this epiphany that if we could just put a little bit of pharmaceutical research dollars into primary prevention, that we could be much more impactful. And, and begin, I began thinking about how to scale uh, prevention of cancer as the best way to manage cancer overall. And, um, and that's just led down this path of nutrition and personalized care um, and, and everything that we're going to talk about today. So that's quite a, yeah, so a hug, maybe a little slap. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I completely agree. I mean, the, the thing is that like some of these, like the EGFR, clearly that's been a big advance. But for, for that, it winds up throwing us back into this sort of old paradigm because and that's the big problem. Yeah, because everybody Ooh. thinks it's all about the genetics. It's like, well, you know that in the sort of 50s, the, when you look at native populations, like the Inui in the far north, I give this example. So Queen's University, which is actually very close to both of us, they used to send an expedition to see why the Inui were immune to cancer. 
And then, of course, then we started feeding them sugar and white flour. And it turns out they weren't immune to cancer after all. But what people forget then with this whole genetic thing, which is, oh, it's HER2, it's EGFR, it's, uh, you know, BCR able. What people forget is that the soil is so important for all of these cancers, right? You have to look at these cancers like breast and colorectal predominantly and say, well, it's not just the genes here that are important because you have native populations. So in Africa, I give the example of Burkitt. Uh, so Denny Burkitt, he was like, he called cancer actually one of the diseases of civilization because the Africans who are eating a traditional African diet and doing a traditional African lifestyle, they didn't get colon cancer. You start feeding them the, you know, the white man's diet, the white man's lifestyle, they start getting cancer. So clearly cancer is not a genetic problem. And it was very, very clear. And even when we were in medical school, we talked about migration studies for Japanese women. So Japanese women and crazy increase in breast cancer rates, like double, triple within a couple of generations but they're the same Japanese genes. So it's like, okay, like we need to focus on what is it about the diet and the lifestyle. That's what's really important because you can practically eradicate these cancers. That's the, that's the promise of this, right? That's crazy. I use the same examples a little bit in reverse over here because everyone wants to believe that cancer is a genetic disease. And when you look at a homogenous population, whether it's Han Chinese, Japanese, Korean women, the breast cancer rates continue to explode at epidemic you know, volumes. And that's a homogenous genetic background. Han Chinese women living in Shanghai have not been intermixing with other genetic backgrounds, yet the breast cancer rates go up. So what changed? They went from a much more rural and, and physically working environment to a sedentary urban environment. It, it's not pollution. It's not smoking. There's a, especially in breast cancer, small contribution of smoking in breast cancer specifically. So what is it? It's diet, lifestyle, sleep, stress, adrenal hormones. And it's not the genetics we, I like the phrase because I, I think that looking at personal genetics and for, for people listening, what Jason and I are talking about often is there's the genetics of the tumor and then there's the genetics of the person. And so even though a lot of my patients harbor genes that have uh, variations, uh, I prefer variations over mutations, but variations that may give them an increased lifetime susceptibility, DNA is not destiny. And we have lots and lots of patients who have so-called bad genes that never develop cancer. And, and you have to begin looking at um, that seed and soil and saying, is the gene actually the cause? Or is it just that if I do everything wrong, if, with, if I make a series of choices, and I'm very cautious about that. Maybe you can help me with this, Jason. How do we, how do we consistently position uh, we can't blame people for what they don't know and what they do. So I don't want anyone to ever think that they gave themselves cancer, but there is a role for personal responsibility in terms of if you know that the, you know, smoking is probably the best example of that, but we do need to eat where you don't need to smoke. But again, back to finish the first thought, you have inherited, you have genes that you get from mom and dad that may increase susceptibility, but by no means guarantee that you're going to get cancer. And, and I think when you looking at a family history, writing down a proper pedigree, a four generation pedigree, something I do with every patient is probably one of the most meaningful interactions that I have with that patient, certainly in that visit. So yeah, the I mean, genes matter, kind of but it's different than, than, uh, the genes of the tumor that doesn't matter as much. I mean, just to be clear, like this is the big reason why we're having this discussion today. Cause like, this is not, I, I want to, I don't want to put words out there, but like, this is not mainstream thought, right? Like this is not out there. People aren't talking about how we eat our lifestyle choices and how that can impact either prevention or how it affects uh, cancer patient while they're getting uh, while they're on treatment. So I think for our, our, our listeners, 
I want to spell it out. Like, what are some of the, in your, like, you know, because we're touched on a few things, fasting, um, uh, low carb keto, but like, what are the, in your mind, some of the measures from a prevention point of view that really stick out in terms of drivers uh, for, for uh, acquiring cancer, whether it's colorectal, whether it's breast, um, in your opinion, we could start with Jason. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like, you have to look at the cancer. So if you look at the cancers that are big in North America, say you've got lung and lung is all about smoking, right? I mean, there's like diet just doesn't play that big a role. But number two is breast and colorectal. Um, and those are both obesity related cancers. And so, you know, people want to know how are you going to prevent it? So people always talk about like, colonoscopies and mammograms, and they certainly have their place because I think that those are great technologies, but people, you know, might want to know more. And what nobody talks about is that there's a huge, huge metabolic role for these cancers because they're metabolic diseases. That's just the same as obesity and type two diabetes. Uh, those are consistently like if you look at um, diet. So they did this in this study a few years ago, where they looked at population attribution risk, which is how much of cancer can be attributed to, say, smoking. And smoking is the biggest. Those thirty-five percent of cancer can be attributed to smoking because it's not just lung; it's also, you know, oral pharyngeal and tongue and all these other things. Um, but diet was like at 30%. And, and, and those two far outrank any other carcinogen by like a huge, huge percentage. Everything else is like 1% or 2%. So if you, if you really want to know how to prevent cancer, it comes down to one, stop smoking, and then two, fix your diet. And then you have to say, well, what part of the diet? Well, it's all about hyperinsulinemia because that is – you know, and, and that was one of the things that was discovered by Lou Cantley through the PI3K pathway, because we had always thought in the 80s and stuff, we had always thought that insulin is all about energy, metabolism, you know, how we generate energy, do you, you know, do you do store glycogen, do you store fat, that kind of thing. What, what nobody had expected is that insulin just is such a huge growth factor. Breast cancer, uh, when you grow it in the lab, like they have like six times the number of insulin receptors as normal breast cells, right? And you say, well, why does the breast cell have so many insulin receptors? Uh, you know, and it doesn't. So why does the breast cancer cell? Well, it's because it's using that insulin as a growth factor. And, you know, it's always interesting to me that when you go back in evolutionary time, insulin was not in, if you look at very early organisms, like, you know, early eukaryotes and stuff, insulin is not actually a metabolic hormone. It's a growth factor. We actually use that growth factor and stuck on an additional role in metabolism as a nutrient sensor. So when you eat, insulin goes up. So the, the, the link is that your body when it senses that there are nutrients, it wants to grow. So when you have a condition of hyperinsulinemia, that is too much insulin all the time, well, then your body's getting the signal, grow, 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 which is going to favor cancer cells that are, you know, take that signal and then sort of run with it. So therefore, if you want to really look at it, you look at this and say, okay, well, if the disease is too much insulin, which is the same problem that you have in obesity, same problem you have in type 2 diabetes, well then, lower insulin, right? It's just like if you have too much thyroid hormone, lower the thyroid hormone. If you have too little thyroid hormone, take some. So if you have too much insulin, you got to lower it. And the question is, how are you going to do that? And that's where you'd say, well, different foods have different insulin-stimulating effects. So ketogenic diets, for example, don't stimulate insulin that much. So therefore, if your disease has too much insulin, then you can use something like a ketogenic diet to lower your insulin levels, or even better, intermittent fasting, you can actually lower your insulin levels sort of maximally, and therefore, um, you know, try and hopefully reduce that growth signaling to prevent your cancer. So the way it works, of course, is that as you use these low-carbohydrate approach, what you do is you wind up losing weight, you wind up reversing your type 2 diabetes, and of course, that is going to lower your risk of cancer because cancer is not something that develops overnight. It's, it's something that develops over 10 or 15 years. So it's always this sort of balance. So, you know, that's, that's the important thing, I think, is to really focus on those, uh, those parts. It's really a metabolic disease 
just like it's, it, it's crazy how it all comes together, <laughs> like obesity, type two diabetes. They're basically diseases of hyperinsulinemia. So is something like breast cancer. That's not purely a disease of hyperinsulinemia, but it contributes just like smoking contributes to lung cancer. You can smoke for 50 years and never get cancer. You could do the same with hyperinsulinemia. But what you see in China, of course, is this explosion of breast cancer. And what do you see right alongside of it? Obesity, type 2 diabetes. Like, it's crazy how much type Daddy 2 diabetes. Liver, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy in China. Their, 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 their rates are skyrocketing. It's so bad. Yeah. Rates and absolute volumes. You know, I would um, sometimes uh, the word keto draws a lot of fire. And uh, you, you, a conversation can be uh, lost because you spend so much time uh, dealing with the uh, paradoxically inflammatory effects of the word keto. <laughs> and um, what uh, uh, our nutrition, our dietitian Kartika, who sits with me every day, um, we, we consistently tell patients what we're known for keto and low carb, but what we really offer is culturally appropriate nutritional interventions for chronic disease and, and try not to get tied to any one way. But what we're trying to achieve with everyone is a low insulin lifestyle. That, that's really the key. And whether it's through a nutritional you know, manipulation of low-carb, keto, fasting, intermittent fasting, whether it's by focusing on sleep, whether it's by adding metformin, whether it's strength training, Whatever the patient can do to begin to lower their insulin levels is the best first step for both prevention of disease as, as well as to improve treatment of, of pre disease that may be present. And, and you just got to find that book. But it's, it, it's all about insulin up front. Uh, I think your book clearly shows, I mean, there's a lot more to, to talk about. I would throw in one other thing because you, you, covered breast and colon cancer. Uh, I used to treat and still do a, a, a lion's share of prostate cancer. And, and one of the interesting things about prostate cancer is that a diagnosis of prostate cancer in many ways is a risk factor for heart disease. And the presence of heart disease is a risk factor for prostate cancer because they're both being driven through the same hyperinsulinemic pathway uh, and, and this has been shown very clearly in a couple of studies of prostate cancer prevention with the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors that, that you're much more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer in a prevention study in otherwise healthy adults in North America if you have heart disease. Uh, it, it's a significant increase. And we work closely with a few cardiologists because we're, we're obviously obsessive about nutrition and uh, cancer prevention. And I can tell so many of my prostate cancer patients, I will, I will absolutely look them in the eye and tell them that there is no way you as a 70-year-old man are ever going to die of prostate cancer if we you know, continue your diet, nutrition, and just watchful waiting. But if you don't address the heart disease you're going to have big problems. And so you just, you have to get a hyper-motivated cardiology team who's going to be on board because you, you, everybody will do people. When you ask someone to do keto or low carb, the man in the street, they're like, maybe, maybe not. That sounds interesting or that sounds crazy. But when somebody has been told they have cancer, the single most, to me, it's still the single most potent word in any language, suddenly they're willing to do things that they wouldn't have done before to look at their health through a completely different lens. And it's an unfortunate set of timing, but it being the optimist, it creates that opportunity to reevaluate what health really means and how you want to live the rest of your life. And I'm talking about people who are being cured, stage one, two, three, breast cancer, prostate, early colon, and, and, and even lung. They they relook at how they're going to make their choices uh, for the next 20 years. Uh, I'm sure you see that as well in, in some of even the kidney patients. Yeah, I think the other thing that I, I really like the way you look at this is that it's really a low insulin effect. And that's one of the things that I've always tried to focus on, like in, in the obesity code and the cancer code. It's, it's trying to understand 
you know, the physiology at that level, because you can eat a high carb diet and still have a low insulin level. And that's the key. And that's why I'm not necessarily low carb, because you look at, they had this study a few years ago, quite a few years ago, and in the Katavans, which I thought was fascinating because it's a 70% carbohydrate diet. So these are these Pacific Islanders. And this Swedish researcher goes over to these Katavans who are eating 69% carb diet, I think. And he measures fasting insulins and compares it to a reference Swedish population. So the average Katavan is at five percentile, meaning that 95% of the Swedish population has a higher average you know, fasting insulin than these Katavans who are eating um, <laughs> you know, 70% carbohydrates, which we would consider, wow, that's super high, right? But the, the funny part is that these are the Swedish who are actually way better than almost any North American, right? These are like these, these athletic, you know, Nordic types, and their fasting insulin are still higher than these Katavans who are eating. So there's lots of different ways to get to that, and it's not necessarily keto, because I hear you, uh, Stephen, that keto, you know, sometimes people get it, oh, you have to eat keto. It's like, well, you know that there's a lot of populations in this world, like the Chinese, for example, in the 1980s. Um, they're eating a ton of white rice because one of the studies they did in China, they said that they're eating like 300 grams of white rice, not all white rice, but carbohydrates. And but I know because my parents are from there, it's all white rice. <laughs> There's it's all and white rice and vegetables. Every last grain. You yeah. But there's just not yeah, that's just all there is though. There's like practically zero sugar. Like and, and that's a great way. Like, and they're not eating all the time. There's no snacks. They're eating once, maybe twice a day because they're working all day in the fields. Uh, then they get this big you know, slug of white rice, but that's all they get. They never have snacks. They never have cookies. They never have tea. They never have muffins. They don't snack at all. And their insulin just comes right down. And you see it because they're skinny like anything, especially compared to today, right? You go to China now, of course, you know, boy, there's a ton of obesity there. It's, it's a huge problem because they took the sort of worst parts of the American diet and then added it to this culture of very high refined carbohydrate intake and in fact, I think the latest study said that they actually have more type 2 diabetes than the Americans, which is almost Impossible. unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, well, right. Compared you, to the Canadians and stuff. It's just to add to the, the personalized thing, like one of the things that after the conversation I had with Stephen um, on our uh, show was continuous glucose monitoring. So I, I, I tried a, a Libre for two weeks. And so just to, just to address some of the comments in here, people, just to be clear, hyperinsulinemia, access to sugar, of carbohydrate of any sort, your pancreas releases insulin, and to try and uh, reduce that, uh, the amount of uh, sugar in your bloodstream. And so the higher, hyper being higher levels of insulin, uh, and we're saying we're, you got to try and mitigate that as much as you can. Keto is one way for some people. Low carb is some way for some people, but it's personalized. What 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 works for you might not work for somebody else. And what one of the things that allowed for identification of what might be cause higher sugars in one person than another is uh, this uh, tool using a continuous glucose monitor. So you would what what I. Oh, there it is. Oh, I love it. I was so addicted to this thing. So for two weeks, <laughs> literally, you get a, a 15 minute, every 15 minutes, you get your glucose measured. Okay. And I got to tell you, as a, a like, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy, fit or whatever, but the, the information was fascinating. Okay. Like if I'm on call and I, mm. I, I got three hours of sleep, higher sugars. If I um, had white rice, Ironically, higher sugars. If I was if I was weight training, my glucose was like this, son. Like for for hours after, like the information you gained from that was unbelievable, and it was inspiring too. Because it's like, hey, this is what this like this is what my body is responding to, and and it, it quite correlated with how you felt too. And so, like, what a tool, man! Like, just in terms of once again personalizing your approach to medicine. Um, I think it gets back to the, to the word sensor that there's, 
and and also i mean you know you're fit you're you you know you say you work out you eat a decent diet the sensors also tell you never judge the book by its cover and uh, you you look at the chinese and they still look lean they look thin but the amount of fatty liver the amount of visceral fat is very different than when you assess a non-asian population so at the end of the day uh, whether when you're personalizing it's data it's 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 without judgment it's you know these are your numbers and what did you do that made these numbers go up or down and you're right how did you feel at the same time i think that's all really really important but but having one of these and we put these on our oncology patients all the time and um it's they're useful they're far more useful for people who have never had diabetes or pre-diabetes. Um, uh, I would say by, by numbers, because the, it's such a, it's such a big denominator there, because you can do such prevention by giving these insights. Um, the perceived efforts, the understanding of what really makes your glucose go up and what you can avoid and what you can do and enjoy while keeping your glucose down. And I'll tell you what really um, frustrates a lot of people is how much alcohol disrupts their sleep and drives their glucose initially down and then up overnight. And um, it, you know, it, it, it emphasizes just how important sleep is. And uh, Jason can tell you that people with chronic sleep disruption uh, also increase their risk, at least statistically, for certain lifestyle-related cancers. Yeah. And I think it gets back to the whole, you know, the title of this podcast, which is Solving Healthcare, right? And this is what's important to preventing all these diseases is this stuff, the glucose monitor, the nutrition, the stuff you do day, the sleep, the stress, the stuff you do day in and day out. And yet what we're focused on as a medical system is the drug, is the surgery, bariatrics like it's it's just like sometimes i look back and say boy like <laughs> no wonder people think the doctors are just in it for the box right because you, you you know that this approach is completely backward because there's so much data on cardiovascular disease metabolic disease and cancer like for for you know it's uh, it's all heart disease and cancer which ca- uh, which kills people and uh, all we're focused on is like, uh, oh, the latest uh, anticoagulant, right? <laughs> it's like, like how many new NOACs do we have, right? It's like, oh, we have like five or six new, oh, and they're, they're debating the benefit of, you know, this relative risk reduction. Between <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things. Yeah. Right. And it's so frustrating because then you're saying, well, why are you not taking like a 1% of that energy that we're doing as doctors and saying, look, we got to get out there. We got to talk about sugar. We got to talk about not eating all the time because honestly we give the opposite advice, eat all the time, right? That's there all the time. We got to get out there and say, look, if you're obese, you need to, you need to really work on this. And here's different ways. Like you don't have to be keto. I'm, I'm, I'm also agnostic as in terms of what you do. Um, but you know, here's, you know, blood glucose monitors, which will help you. Here's other apps that will help you. Instead, we focus almost exclusively on these things that are on the fringes of what actually makes a difference to healthcare. Because if you prevent that heart disease or cancer, you don't wind up with that terribly expensive cancer medication. Then you get this horrible complication. Then you go to the ICU to see quad. And, you know, all of a sudden... And we all give you steroids. Exactly. <laughs> well, I go and do your dialysis, right? And it's like, oh, the, the system is all set up in, in the wrong way. Uh, you can see it and nobody wants to do anything about it. 
um, because they're all focused on this, which is which has a lot of dollars behind it. And, and so a lot of cynical people out there and say, you know, the doctors are just in it to make the next buck. And, and, and it's like, I can see why they think that, but it's, it's, it's to some extent the way we get trained by the universities. They, they don't focus on it properly. They don't talk about it. Uh, you None of the stuff we talked about in med school. None of it. None of it. Zero, yeah. zero. Crazy, yeah. isn't it? I, I took a year off medical school to study nutrition and everything that I learned was calories in calories out. I mean, I was at Rockefeller university and it was energy metabolism for a year and uh, fascinating. A lot of stuff, neuropeptides, GI stuff, all of that. But the core principle was calories in calories out. And that really sets everyone back uh, in their thinking. And it just stops you from being successful and, and thinking of other paradigms. Um, it's it's well, a shame. Well, nothing frustrates me, honestly, more than calories in, calories out. Because <laughs> you get out there, right? And you talk about how calories, like, first of all, the body doesn't measure calories, right? It measures hormones. So if you eat a certain, you know, 100 calories of broccoli, it's going to have a different hormonal response from our body than 100 calories of cookies, for example, right? So you eat cookies, insulin goes up, you eat an egg, insulin doesn't go up. So the metabolic hormonal response of our body completely different, yet we pretend it doesn't matter. (laughs) What do you mean? If insulin goes up way up, versus not going way up, it makes a huge difference. Like that's just basic common sense. And yet every, practically every academic doctor is willing to forget that and just say, it's all about calories. Like you get to these, you know, it's easy to say, and it's like, talk to the dietitian, go talk to someone else, not my wheelhouse. And, and the patient gets moved along. That, I think that's part of it too. It's, well, I'm your gastro guy. I did your scope. I didn't see H by man. You should siloed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It- but it's also what you're saying, Stephen, you get into the academic uh, nutrition space and then it's all calories, calories, calories. So then that's what you learn. You get out there with your PhD and you say, well, it's calories. That's what I learned. That's what I teach. That's got to be right. Cause all my friends who are also PhD, you know, nutritionists, Say mm-hmm. it's all about calories. We so forget the basic physiologic principles. The grants are only available for calories. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get too phil- philosophical, Crazy. but we don't in medicine though. We we don't really accept out of box thinking. Like it's not um, it's not embraced. Um, but this is this is really exciting, guys. Like it's just about because I think I'm hoping the audience really feels empowered like you know what what you eat how your sleep your um training like resistant training how that impact these are all elements of improving your metabolic health or reducing your insulin uh release so there's all these things that you know not only for your you know for cancer prevention but for cardiovascular weight maintenance diabetes prevention diabetes so important um the other thing i think just to kind of tap off the list, you know, really, uh, and Ms. Michelle, I see it to, to uh, thanks for the comment on like cortisol being a, a challenge. And she's a type one diabetic talking about how that's been an issue, like stress management as well. Like, you know, I don't know, Stephen, maybe you could address this. And uh, first off about some of the things that you may have been suggesting for your your patients in clinic to try and reduce that stress as well because like once again when i had that not to be too personal but like when that that um cgm the continuous glucose monitor when things like if i had to before doing a media appearance or something sugars were up man like it's all relative like you know it's not like it was in the teens or something but it was like it's like stress mattered you know what i'm saying right so um, there's, when you think of that spectrum of interventions to lower insulin and, and the, the, the obvious targets are you know, food choice, um, exercise, and sleep. And, and the way that we cure breast cancer today, already established, you've never known anything about nutrition, you come see me and you've got stage one, two, three breast cancer. We start out by following guidelines that we, you know, we, we give either adjuvant, uh, Recommend surgery, of course, uh, some kind of local therapy and systemic therapy to reduce risk of relapse, which is going to be 
chemo hormones targeted. We're not going to go off the reservation in that sense and do something radically different. Now, if you follow that, uh, the U.S. Uh, SEER database will say that stage one, two has like nearly a 99% five-year cure rate for stage one, two, and an 85% five-year cure rate for stage three. We've been tracking everyone that I've seen who's a newly diagnosed breast cancer patient here, diagnosed here in the office. Maybe not, you know, it's Singapore, so it could be Indonesia, Vietnam. But the ones that we follow from day one here, we haven't had a single relapse in a decade with a median follow-up uh, between six and seven years. And 50% of those cases are stage three. And so what are we doing that's different here? And I'll tell you, because it gets to the question about stress. And, and I wouldn't claim to, to be deeply knowledgeable on this, but positive psychology and the ability to empower the patient and in a sense, reduce their internal adrenal axis, re reduce the, the, you know, the cortisol load, I think makes a huge difference. When the patient comes in and says, is it okay if I do low carb or fasting or take uh, green tea extract? As long as we don't see any harms and we support them, empower them, and you know, it, 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 I think that helps reduce their stress, that they know that they've got a partner who is listening to them, who's supporting them, who's not just parroting along and saying, you know, sure, you can take, you know, if you think smoking 10 sticks a day reduces cancer, I, I'm not going to agree with that. But if you tell me you believe that prayer going to going to church more after the diagnosis is helpful, then I, uh, I will say, I'm sure it's helpful for you. Um, you know, that's really good that you've taken this proactive stance around your health. And, and I think that we do this after all the conventional things, we will look at the nutritional domain. We will look at the supplement and uh, vitamin domain. Um, that has to be looked at very carefully. Uh, for example, uh, curcumin turmeric sometimes has negative interactions with, uh, with drugs. So it's not just a free-for-all in the supplement space. But then there's also old medications and repurposing medications. So I think we all have spent some time talking about metformin and the potential benefits in prevention, longevity, anti-cancer. I think in the, the space that, that, that we all inhabit, we argue about uh, frequently the wild overuse and over-expectations of statins. But there may be a role in select cases for statins as anti-inflammatories um, for people who want to do something else. If they really believe that the statin is, is helping them and it's not causing a problem, I'm not going to get upset about it. But there are a lot of drugs, all of the uh, ivermectins and, um, you know, any of these drugs, old medicines, really, they're working through mitochondrial, um, you know, dysfunction. But whatever it is that the patient brings to us, and we have that patient, uh, an oncologist is the primary care doctor for a, a patient with a history of cancer. And if you can get them into a lifestyle and a supportive care system that helps reduce their global stress, I think that that's really what we're doing to make that extra difference and why we see better success than published other places. And, and before I finish here, I'll, I'm gonna give Jason, I'm gonna hand one off to Jason because I, I I want to know if you know about this and how you, you could probably write very well about it. The, the new domain that I talk to people about is breathing. And, and you, the, where keto was the thing two years ago, and everybody's Googling keto, this and that, I'm convinced that breath work is the catchphrase I, I love for that the shit. next year. <laughs> and, and I've done a little bit of sort of Wim Hof, uh, very introductory breath work. And it's, it's actually quite uh, impactful. And um, it, it really does help you. What, the word cancer causes PTSD. I think that's the most simple way to put it. And breathwork is a way of changing your mind to reduce stress. So with, with that, I'll pause and, and pass it over to Jason for a lot, you know, for a lot more. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think what's really important is that this what you talk about about empowering patients 
to have a role is so important because we have so much data on what really kills people. And you have these animal experiments, for example. And what kills animals really is the loss of self-determination. When you make this helpless creature, like you give them shocks and there's nothing they can do about it. You get this learned helplessness and actually completely destroys the animal, right? This loss of autonomy is much more, is much worse than almost anything else you can do. And so some people talk, like sometimes you get into things and these, a lot of the academic doctors particularly, they're all like, oh yeah, that's all like, but it's like, okay, but let's just go back to some physiology here because the physiology has been worked out forever. Okay, stress hormone is cortisol. What happens when you give cortisol? When your stress level, say you have cancer diagnosis, you have super high levels of cortisol all the time. We know exactly what happens when you get high cortisol levels all the time. Same thing that happens when you treat an asthmatic with big doses of prednisone. They you basically get obesity, you get thin skin, they break down their muscle, all really bad things. And this is exactly what you're going to get when you have chronically high cortisol levels. And that's not something you can deal with in terms of diet, but you can by listening, by having a supportive community, with prayer for some people, with religion. And, and, and that's where, you know, people think, oh, it's all just, you know, airy-fairy. It's not. It's all real medicine here. And that's what always frustrates me about, you know, talking to some people is like, they're all, oh, breathwork, it's dumb. It's like, it's not dumb. It's all physiology because, you know, quad saying, when your stress level goes up, your glucose goes up. And that's not going to cause good things in the long run if you're stressed all the time, if your sleep is bad all the time. I actually see a lot of these chronic pain patients and their, 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 their cortisols are always high. They can't lose weight. And it's, I think it's all because of that sort of chronic pain syndromes that they have. Their cortisol is not letting them lose weight. It's not willpower. It's not exercise. Like how many of these, you know, people on high doses of prednisone, they can't lose weight, like no matter what, like, and they'll, they'll, they'll diet, they'll exercise, they won't be able to lose weight. And it's because of the prednisone, right? It's like, how can you deny that that stress is a important contributor in some people? And therefore, what you're doing is so important, because you're saying, like, look, I, I'm going to treat you with the surgery with the radiation. But let's, empower you to do something about that metabolic milieu that is allowing the breast cancer to spread or recur. Because that's really important, getting that cortisol down, getting that insulin down, super important, not just for obesity, but for cancer. And of course, they're super motivated. So maybe they need meditation. Maybe they need a group, like a therapy group or something. Like, it's, it's just crazy because people who have never been in that situation wind up making judgments on these things, which can be potentially life-saving, like whether it's breath work or, or meditation or retreats or whatever it is. I actually think that there's a huge power there that's completely untapped, but so far, like, you know, there's no, there's nobody who's willing to, to, to do studies, to, to look at this. And it's crazy because no then we sort of poo-poo it, right? We just say, oh, there's no evidence. It's like... And there's no money know. in it, but it's coming. Oh I, I actually think it's coming because people are, are, are becoming more enlightened. And just to give some context to the breath work, we did a show with... Um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Was, what's that? James Nestor. Yeah, James Nestor. Thank you. Yeah, I wrote the book uh, Breath. Great and uh, there's, a, there's a few good books out there. There's another one with Patrick McEwen called The Oxygen Advantage. You read this shit and your mind's going to be blown, yo. Because it's simple <laughs> things. Simple things. Because you, you take it for granted. Like, even right now, like, most of, a lot of people are breathing through their mouths predominantly. And the simple measure of focusing, of uh, trying to breathe through your, no your nose, doing diaphragmatic breathing, your level of, like, uh, adrenal hormones will start to settle. You'll feel that automatic like if you all right now just slow breath through your nose you'll you'll notice your heart rate go down you'll you'll just you feel that much better and just to to practice that a few times a day you're sitting in line waiting for your coffee and you take three or four deep breaths watch out that difference in in tone in mood whether it's meditation whether it's a group therapy like 
I, I know I'm personally convinced that it, it makes a difference. And plus, you feel better. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> if anything at all, like, if you look at, you might not have that hard outcome or the evidence-based uh, randomized controlled trial yet, but you will feel better. And, and you're going to approach your your upcoming, um, you know, chemo radiation, your treatments with that much better attitude. Like, it's all win-win as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I, I was reading it, though. In, in the office, you have a very, very full day, and you have uh, challenging patients at the end of the day. You've got family obligations, and you know you still have to be the professional. You will be the professional version of yourself. Taking 60 seconds to breathe between patients lets you be fresh, like the beginning of the day, uh, like it's your first patient of the day. And it makes a huge difference because we all get exhausted. I mean, so it, it, it's self-care, not just, you know, cancer prevention and, and stress reduction. I think it's um, just such a great technique. Yeah. yeah, I was just reading about also something else. Um, see, they're talking about the breathing and then they're talking about the Japanese. They have this practice called forest bathing where they'll go into the yeah. forest and just stay there for a few days. And they said they did this small study, of course, where they looked at, you know, people who didn't versus did, and, you know, their cortisol levels and stuff were just way down. It's the forest, right? And, of course, everybody recognizes on some level that that's true. You get out into nature and you just feel, like, more relaxed, right? It's, it's, it's a totally different energy. And that's the kind of thing that you know, is, is so important to acknowledge so that we can actually say, well, here's something you can do. If you have access to it, then do it. Do the, do the force bathing, do the meditation, go out and, you know, just sit in the sun for a little bit. It's, it's just so important. And I actually think it's way more important than we give it credit to because, you know, with the lockdown and stuff, normally I go away in the winter time, at least for a week and just sit in the sun for a little bit. And it's like, you feel better. Like, obviously, everybody knows it because the, 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 the results are packed. I want to go away for a week in the winter. <laughs> but what you're but talking it, about, Jason, it's called a sense of awe. And yeah. it's just like when you're a kid and you get something for the first time, forest bathing and being out somewhere like in the Great Sequoias creates a sense of awe, which does the same thing that breathwork does. And it, it sort of breaks part of your fixed thinking and brings you back to a more, to, it, it changes neuroplasticity. Um, and, and, and this is new to me. And if, if you haven't read it, I'd, I'd give a plug for Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. Uh, I, I thought that was a fabulous book. And there have been lots of experiments of taking people and bringing them to the sequoias in Northern California and seeing how they feel um, and these are people with PTSD and chronic depression and talking about, they had them draw f- images of themselves on, on paper before and after being in the sequoias. And they consistently draw much smaller versions of themselves after they come back from being in the forest, that they get a sense of their, um, they can think about more than just themselves uh, through that, that change of thinking. I love it because honestly, I, I think for the betterment of all, a little less ego is, uh, could go a long way. I should mention too, we're going to take questions right now, but, um, this is one of the things that solving healthcare, we're, we're taking on a new initiative. It's called solving wellness, where we're going to be doing a virtual platform where you're going to get some of these tools, fitness, nutrition, uh, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, all on a virtual platform, just for this reason, you know, like to, I think if, if I'm 80, 20 in healthcare, it really comes down to prevention. Like if you want to, what's going to get you not in that chemotherapy uh, suite, what's not, what's going to prevent you from getting COVID? What's going to prevent you from uh, walking into our ICU or uh, getting wheeled into our ICU? And, you know, some these are some of the, the tools. And so I think education awareness, bringing this to the table. I think people need more of this and that's a game plan moving forward. Yeah. I think that's, I think you're on the right track uh, quad for sure, because I always say that what, what's happened in medicine is that we've taken 
a paradigm of medicine from the 20th century. So you look at the 20th century and it's all infections, right? Then we got antibiotics, we got antivirals and all this sort of stuff. But the paradigm was, okay, I got sick, like with impetigo or something. I go to the doctor, I get a drug, I get better, right? That's your paradigm. I get sick, I get surgery, I get better. Now we move into the 21st century and it's all chronic metabolic disease. It's all obesity related, type 2 diabetes, which leads to the heart disease and the cancer, which is what kills us. So it's all chronic disease. And we took the same approach. We want to go, patient comes in with obesity, here's a drug, here's a surgery, here's a pill, here's bariatric surgery, you get better, you go home. Well, it doesn't work. No. It doesn't work at all. And that's what you're talking about. To solve healthcare, it's public health. It's It's all public health, it's all the prevention. Yo. Tell me that wasn't juicy fruit. Tell me that wasn't full of knowledge and game. As I mentioned, you want the full episode? Go to solvinghealthcare.ca backslash cancer. We'll get the full video sent to you. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. You know what we're doing? We're continuing to change that bookie, yo. And it starts with you. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And I hope we connect again real quick. Peace.